Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and joining me today is the ever-wonderful Lauren. Way too nice to me. (laughs) (laughs) Before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and more. And now, let's do a quick summary of the book. In the third Era 2 novel, things kick off with the long-awaited wedding of Wexilium Ladrian and Steris Harms. Or, well, maybe not. Thanks to the machinations of Wayne, a water tower collapses and floods out the wedding before Wax and Steris can exchange their vows. In the aftermath, the conjurer Vendel approaches Wax with a new task. When Wax tells him to kick rocks, Vendel next turns to Marisy, who agrees to help. Wax is dragged into the venture, and the whole crew sets off to New Saren to find the missing spike of another Chandra, investigate the rumored bands of mourning, and find Wax's sister, Telson. After a train robbery on the way to the outer city, Wax and Steris attend a party while Wayne and Marisy check out the local graveyard. Wax has several in- interesting encounters at the party, including a conversation with my favorite Sanderson character ever, and finds clues to his uncle's plans before escaping. Wayne and Marisy, meanwhile, are ambushed, but get away with even more information, leading the whole group to the small town of Dulcin. There, they infiltrate a set compound and discover Telson, an airship, and a prisoner named Alec. Alec breaks them out aboard a skimmer, and Telson convinces them to head to the Lost Temple of the Sovereign, the location of the fabled Bands of Mourning. They land at the temple just ahead of Edwarn's expedition. Wax and Milan penetrate the traps and defenses with Telson, while Wayne, Steris, and Marisy wait for Edwarn's approach. Edwarn parlays with Wax, convincing him to let him tag along for the final approach to the bands. When they open the door, however, they find the pedestal empty. Telson reveals that she's been part of the set all along, incapacitates Milan, and shoots Wax, who throws himself down a pit. Edwarn pursues him and finds another false trail, a set of fake bands. Wax dies, crushed under another trap, while Telson and Edwarn round up the rest of the crew. While Wax is busy talking with Harmony in the Cognitive Realm, however, Marisy figures out where the Bands of Mourning truly are. She takes up the power of a full Twinborn and puts the set on their heels before heading to find Wax. Thanks to Marisy and the Bands, he's able to heal his body and return to life. Wayne hunts down Telson and shoots her, retrieving the Conjurer's spikes. She heals and escapes. Wax defeats Edwarn and takes him into custody before making a preliminary deal with the Mawish, thanks to Steris' help. The whole group returns to Elendel, where Wax and Steris finally get married. Edwarn is killed in his cell by an agent of Trell, Marisy continues her investigation of Trell, and Wax discovers that the coin given to him by Hoyd is actually an unkeyed copper mine, holding yet another secret. Oh, man. There's some uh, some serious Cosmere things in this. Yes, there is. Uh, but before we get into that, let's talk writing style. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, or maybe even before we get into writing style, uh, you know, this is the final currently published Era 2 book. Uh, we are just a couple of weeks away from The Lost Metal. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see where you think this book falls in kind of the rankings of the three, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this book as a whole are? I like this the most of the three. Um, I think our characters are well-developed here and there are fewer, um, I don't know what to call them. Like parts where I get bounced out by something where it's like, sure. 
like in the last book, we talked about how Wayne had some moments where his just his comments were so obnoxious and in contrast to what was going on that they kind of take you away from what you're reading and and you go, Ugh. you know, and I, I felt like this book was a lot smoother. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is my favorite of the three. Um, and it is in large part to your last point there. I think this is one of Brandon's tightest written books. The pacing is just impeccable. The way this flows from scene to scene, the way the tension mounts, the way the action develops, it is just so smooth. You find yourself in the climax of the book before you even realize it, but it's not in this like jarring, you know, zero to a hundred way that you get in some of his other books like Elantris or sure. Well of Ascension or Way of Kings. Uh, it's just this gradual smooth acceleration throughout the book and and it just the the result is this is brandon close to his best and i don't think it dragged really anywhere no no i mean there's no room for it to drag we we go from these opening scenes of you know there's the prologue flashback to wax's time in the you know, in the village, um, straight to a very quick scene of Wax taking in, you know, an outlaw, going straight from there to the wedding, going straight from there to, you know, Vendel's setup, going straight from there to the train, and then New Saren. We have a brief scene at the hotel, which we'll talk about later, and then they're off to the graveyard, off to the party, and then they're off to Dulcing, and suddenly we're in the climax of the book. It yeah. just boom, boom, boom. It's so tightly plotted. Um, yeah. And, and even just on a prose level, it's one of the, uh, one of the most polished books from Sanderson, in my opinion, I think he does a really good job of succeeding at the type of prose that he talks about trying to write. He, 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 Brandon always brings up this analogy of the prose of a book being like the glass filling a window. Mm -hmm. And some writers build a beautiful stained glass window and you're, you're seeing through it into the story, but the portal to the story is a work of art in and of itself. And with his writing, he often says he tries to do a clear window pane where he's like, I'm not trying to get in the way. I'm just trying to give you an unhindered view at what the story is. And he is more or less successful at that in some books. I've on previous episodes, I've talked about some of my issues with the way he uses metaphors and similes. Yeah. Um, I, I think he has some jarring, awkward sentence structures uh, but in this book, I really didn't notice a whole lot of that. There were a couple of instances where there was that just clunky multi-sentence simile. Uh, there's oh, one yeah. There's one in particular that stood out to me where uh, Wax is thinking about Steris and he describes her like an uncut emerald in a field of like 
green glass. Yeah, that did that um, did bring me out for a and, second. Yeah, it, where it was like he talks about her, ends the sentence, and then begins the next sentence with the word like, like an uncut emerald, mm. and and that. That's the like simile construction that really bugs me that Brandon does all the time. But that was one of the only times in this book that I felt really pulled out. Uh, his his use of um, anachronistic words wasn't as bad as it is in some books. Like there was again just one that really stood out to me where he used the word jingoism, which was like like okay, Brandon, <laughs> like you can. You can come up with a better word than that, um, but but just in general, I think the the writing's really tight. It's really polished. It just this book is the whole package when it comes to the Cosmere. Yeah, and and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time uh, introducing the characters because we already know them. I think mm-hmm. that that also makes it a little tighter. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's definitely true. And it gives him an opportunity to do something a little different. Uh, there are several notable point of view shifts. Uh, you know, in the early, yeah. in Alloy of Law, you know, we get some, a couple of Marisy points of view, a couple of Wayne points of view, and a couple of Miles points of view. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, in Shadows of Self, we get like, I mean, we get a, an innate point of view at the very beginning. Oh, yeah. Um but here there are several chapters like there's there's the uh the point of view of the outlaw at the very beginning whose name i can't remember because he's that unimportant um you know there are a couple of like edwarn and telson points of view that align with kind of what he was doing with miles in the first book Mm -hmm. but then there there are points of view from like just random people around uh there's the engineer we get a point of view from him. We get a point of view from the guy who runs the graveyard, you know? Yes. Yeah. And so I think having that room to show our main characters through the lens of somebody else is something he's only able to do, only able to fit in this book. Thanks to what you pointed out, where he's already spent a lot of the time developing the internal landscape of these characters. Now he can spend some time on the external how do how are they perceived by the people around them? Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Um, the other big style thing, uh, and this is something we've briefly touched on uh, in in the previous era two episodes, but we really have to talk about the broadsheets. Uh, yeah. Now there are Cosmere things in the broadsheets that we'll discuss later in the episode when we get to the Cosmere spoilers part. But from a style perspective, there's one important thing specifically with this broadsheet that uh, we got to bring up, and that is the Nikki Savage story. And Isaac wrote this one, right? Correct. This is uh, the first real story written in the Cosmere by somebody not Brandon Sanderson. Okay, so we should tell who Isaac is. Yeah, Uh or if Isaac not, has been on this show. Uh, Isaac has been on this That's show. That's right. Um, yeah, if in case you haven't listened to our Locklands episode or you're not familiar, Isaac Stewart is Brandon Sanderson's art director, essentially. He um, he does the maps in all of the books, and he wrangles, you know, guest artists and, and helps 
you know, direct the the way art is used in Cosmere books. And, and this is a pretty, you know, essential thing, uh, especially as Brandon has gotten bigger, um, you know, more creative control, more money gets put into the production of his books. He gets more and more art. I mean, they're frankly ridiculous productions. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah some of the leather bounds, just uh, unbelievable. But I mean, Isaac also drew some of the symbols. Yeah, yeah. Isaac, he does the glyphs. He did the steel alphabet in Mistborn. He does the glyphs in, in Stormlight. Uh, I think he did the Aeons in Elantris. Not 100% certain about that, though, but I think so. Uh, anyway, he's also a writer. And he, uh, you know, he helps Brandon, um, the character Nas who appears in the Nikki Savage story as the haunted man is a character that Isaac created. Um, and Isaac got to, you know, write about him in, in this book. And I think in, in a way like Isaac does a good job of giving Nikki Savage a voice. So one of the things that Brandon talks about in the acknowledgements in this book is that you know, he calls out that Isaac wrote that story. And he said the reason they went for that is because um, Alamancer Jack, who, you know, the previous stories have been Alamancer Jack stories. Well, now he's kind of like outsourcing some writing, adventure writing. And so he's like, if in world, a different person is writing this story in the real world, he wanted some, a, a different voice. And I think Isaac does a good job of that, of both, retaining a clean, clear writing style. Uh, so it's not crazy jarring to readers of Sanderson who are used to a specific type of storytelling, but also having a slightly different voice so that it doesn't, it really does get that different feel. Um, Nikki Savage versus Alamancer Jack. Alamancer Jack, obviously huge egotist, very clearly a uh, an embellisher. Yep. Um, you know, we get the the funny captions on Alamancer Jack in the Pits of Eltania from Handerwim. Uh, the the um, terrace. Yeah, the footnotes uh, talking about what really happened. We don't get that with Nikki Savage. But what we do get with her is um, like a sense of strong competency that's maybe a little overboard but doesn't approach the, the levels of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not bravado, but. Uh, Arrogance? Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a specific word I'm looking for. It's on the tip of my tongue and I can't find it right now. But with, with Alamancer Jack, he's just so ridiculously over the top. Um, she's not over the top, but she does really lean on certain things. The number of times in a short span, she brings up the Bazcorn monks who like trained her. Yeah, you know, and, oh, and the number yeah, of times yeah, she's yeah. like, my Bazcore training, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and so you get the sense that she's got one specific thing or one or two specific things. Her, her chromium is, of course, important as well. Um, and, and she really leans on those elements of storytelling, using her abilities as a direct uh, delivery vehicle for her stories in a way that Alamancer Jack doesn't. He he's more like he puffs himself up on a like a character level. Like look at how brave I am and how smart I am and mm -hmm. you know 
Whereas Nikki Savage is like, these are my abilities and I'm going to make sure the story rests upon those. Uh, so like it, it makes for a really fun story. Uh, we'll definitely talk more about it again when we get to the Cosmere stuff, but that was my last big style thing. Do you have any, any more before we get into characters? So I want to say that uh, in the audiobook, mm. those broadsheets are a little jarring in that like you you don't see them coming and it's just all of a sudden like broadsheet blah 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 and I'm like whoa whoa oh yeah <laughs> we were in the middle of the other story I forgot whoa I like I wasn't ready yeah that's a good point like I I was just talking about how much n- non-traditional media there is in uh, the Cosmere books and that doesn't always translate well to audiobooks. Like, yeah, I know audiobooks of the Stormlight Archive, you miss out on so much art. Yes. Um, the maps, the sketchbooks, you know, the descriptions where they, you know, they have how to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you can only describe that so well. And yeah, the, the scientific diagrams, yeah. the, the like fashion. Yes. If I remember yeah. right in Stormlight, it's only, it's not really described. It's just, whatever words are written are said. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, with this, it's probably a little easier for them to do it because it is a newspaper, but even then they're, they're like political cartoons. Yes. In these and, um, you know, company logos and, and, uh, pictures and things that go along with ads and stuff like that. Illustrations in the articles in the stories, you know, like there is an illustration from the, you know, the haunted man in the gondola. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That is something you lose a little bit um, from the audiobook experience. True. And I wonder if they changed it for graphic audio. Does this one have a graphic audio? I don't know. That's a good question. I know um, some of them do. Yeah. I can, I can look it up. Um, Ooh, it's not auto. Uh, it doesn't look like graphic audio has Mistborn Era 2. Huh. Looks like it's just Final Empire, Wall of Ascension, Hero of Ages. Oh, no, they do. They do. Oh, Alloy okay. of Lost House of Self, Bands of Mourning, Part 1 and Part 2. And they're going to have Lost Metal. Wow. Oh, in, in January, they'll have the Lost Metal. And they also have Secret History, 11th Metal, Alamancer Jack. Oh no, two parts of Lost Metal. Oh yeah, December for part one and January for part two. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I wonder uh, if they do the broadsheets differently in there. Yeah, I guess if you're uh, a graphic audio listener, let me know. Let us know on you know on Facebook or Discord or Twitter or whatever. Um, uh, let us know what that experience is like with the broadsheets. Yeah, curious I, to I find am out. Curious, but yeah. So let's let's move into characters. Whew, okay, who do you want to start with? Um, let's start with Wax. Okay, Wax has some growth here. Yeah, so he he spends a good chunk of this book really really angry at Harmony. Um, he refuses the call at the very beginning. Uh, gets dragged out of Elendel by the, uh, you know, the 
tantalizing tidbit of Telson. Did you have to do that? I did have to do that. Uh, uh, but the whole time he's going through and he's just thinking like, I'm doing this because of my family. This is not about harmony. This is not about the Chandra. This is just like, you know, I owe her. I abandoned her. Yeah. And, and then towards the end of the book, especially when he meets with harmony finally, and he accepts what he had to do, but also accepts that, yeah, he was angry at harmony, but he was also angry at himself and he was projecting that anger. Yep. Um, so I think this is where wax is the most interesting, uh, last book, you know, I was pretty upfront that I think his, his kind of internal character arc fell flat for me because I didn't really care about Lessie. I didn't, I don't think that Brandon did a good enough job establishing what that relationship meant or, or giving us enough as readers to believe the depth of emotion that wax is showing. Yeah. Uh, and in the first book, he's just, you know, it's just like, what is his duty to his house? And, and like, where does he find that balance between being a lawman and a nobleman? And like, that's fine. That's fine. And all like, it was a good character arc, but it's not super compelling here. You know, this is a compelling character. arc. He's angry at God. He's wrestling essentially with his own morality and religion. And, uh, and and has to come to a pretty important realization about himself. Yeah, and I, and I think he's also wrestling with his place in life, like who he is and who he wants to be. And Steris helps him with that. Yeah, that that is the other side of his his arc here, going from the opening scene at the wedding where he realizes. You know, just before the water tower comes crashing down, he realizes, like, I can't do this. I can't, you know, I'm not ready to marry somebody else. I don't love her. I'm, I don't, like, I don't think know. it was, I don't love her. I think it was, oh, like, I'm just not ready. I, I, yeah, he definitely didn't love her at that point. He looks um, at her with it's, adoration. It's not till later that he, he, like, realizes around, like, when they're leaving when New he kisses her. Yeah. Um, that he's like, no, I do feel this emotion for her. Um, I Okay, so you're you know. saying maybe he had fondness at this point? Sure, but I, I think he was still in... Uh, he was too self-absorbed. Sure, sure. He he needed to get over himself, get over Lessie, but more, more so get over himself before he could properly enter into that relationship. And I think that was an important aspect of when they get married at the end is that he asks her to marry him again. And she's like, you know, I already said yes. And he's like, that was a different question. That was a contract. I want to ask you as, you know, two people in a relationship. Yes. In a romantic relationship. And so. Yeah. I would say he's just not available for that before. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's too self-absorbed. He's being selfish. And he needed to figure out how to get over that. I'm not sure I blame him, but yeah. No. Should we talk about stairs next? Yeah, let's talk about stairs. Oh my gosh. Best part of the book. She's, she's so wonderful in this. Yeah, this was definitely the book <laughs> that I think if if many readers hadn't yet like come to enjoy her after Shadows of Self... 
this is where a lot of people just fell in love with Steris. And I did too at, during the first yeah. read. Yeah, same. And the second read, I love her even more. She's so great. Like, I laughed out loud. I think you saw me at one point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, I think it was the point at the party where not only does she have the stuff to epicac to make herself throw up and mm-hmm. she's ready, but she she also has a gun strapped with like multiple things of duct tape mm-hmm. around her leg and like two pairs of shorts. And because of course she does. Yeah. It's like seven layers of tape or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Cause she was worried about it falling out and shooting somebody. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, my gosh. It was great. She's just, she, she's wonderful in this. And he says that to her multiple, multiple times. times. Yeah. And to me, there are parts of this where she's absolutely inspirational. Like, I cannot aspire to have magical powers. I can't aspire to prepare for situations and, like, accomplish things the way that she does. Like, she she is extremely well-read. Like she, she has so much knowledge because she prepares these lists and thinks about like what she needs. Oh, that reminds me on the train. That was hilarious too. Oh, and she's like reading up on <laughs> sex education. Poor Steris. Yeah. That's, <laughs> she's so embarrassed. Yeah, that was a funny scene. I mean, that's, oh, I just felt for her. Yeah. Where she's yeah. like, yes, I've taken anatomy in like health classes, but I don't actually know. Everybody's and nobody like, will tell me. And nobody will tell. She's like, I went to prostitutes. I went to, who else did she go to? It was. Yeah. The prostitutes, like when they found out, they, they like were even more reserved. Ugh. Or they wanted to preserve her innocence. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. Mm. Yeah, Steris was just great. Like I, she's a perfect supporting character in this book, and she's she's blatantly realistic with herself. Where, like she, in in one sense, I'll explain. Okay. So she's ranking everybody on the team, and she gives herself a seven. I don't think that part's realistic. However. She's like, no, I'm not useless and I'm not bothered by what I can't do. I will, I will, yes, I will stay behind because I can't help here and I could only hurt. I'm not bothered by that because I don't need to be perfect in every situation. Yeah, she, so she has a multi-book character arc um, and it's not resolved in this book, uh, but she starts off with a very pessimistic um, like self-evaluation. Uh, she has very little self-esteem. And over time, like by the end of this book, she has gotten to the point where she's starting to see value in herself. Yes. But she still regularly undervalues herself. Yes. Yes. So. I just mean she's realistic in what she can and cannot do. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, but that's just, you know, that's that character conflict that you know, we're, we're taking out of this book and we'll be heading into the Lost Metal. 
Yeah. And um, I, but I don't think she hates herself. No, she doesn't hate herself. I think she may have hated herself a little bit in the alloy of law. Sure. But she like she has had growth from book to book. Uh, the the first party in Shadows of Self was a big stepping stone for her. And then uh, this trip to New Saren, of course, was another massive step. Uh, like she's, you know, if we're going to go to the, the love languages thing, she's definitely a words of affirmation kind of person. Okay. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, she, she doesn't seem to need physical touch all the time, but she likes when he makes the moves. Yeah. Like, mm. like when he kisses her and when he holds her tight, she's like, Oh, I, you do care. Like you care more than our contract. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she fully realizes that until the end when he asks her to marry him again. She hopes for it at the very beginning, yeah. but she, She's she's worried that it's too much of a dream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she outright states it at the end when he proposes, and and she's like, you know, this is not something I ever expected to happen. Oh, you know. So yeah, that was that was a, a very nice moment. Uh, but let's let's move on. Let's move on to Wayne. Okay. Uh, I feel like there's a lot less to say about Wayne in this book. Uh which is good. Like, I think this book just moves too fast for Brandon to spend much time with Wayne. Uh, like most of the Wayne points of view are in action scenes. We get that character moment early on when he goes to Renette, you know, and like finally like admits that he's like, you know, I gotta, this is the lost cause. I gotta move on. Cause Barassi tells him to. Yeah. Um, but the only other real character moment and it's it's just so fast but it's at the end when when he shoots Telson no uh that's 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 action adjacent mm. um I'm talking about at the end end when they're flying back and he starts going in on Steris again and he's like are you sure she's gonna be okay now that she's leaving her natural frigid ice cold hat oh. and wax just says enough you're done. He's like, yeah. Stop it. And that was needed. Um, again, like, I, I think it's something that pulling out to a, a an authorial perspective, Brandon is starting to realize over time is how obnoxious some of his comic relief characters can really be. Mm-hmm. Um, that he can't just have them get over themselves that a lot of them, if they're going to have actual growth as characters and not just be this, depending on your sense of humor, either funny side character or obnoxious side character, there needs to be an external character influence on them. We see it in the Stormlight Archive with uh, one particular character. I don't want to go into spoilers, but there's there's a, a notorious character there who has somebody close to them call them out. And that's really important. And for me, reading that moment helped, you know, helped me not dislike that character so much. And here, again, we have Wax 
calling him out, being like, dude, this is not okay. You need to stop it. Wayne was never going to stop by himself. No. And he needed Wax to shoot him down. So I appreciated that. Yeah, as far as the the gun thing goes, um, where he picks up the shotgun and he shoots Telson, uh, like it was a cool scene, but it was to me that one mm, lands more like uh, you know just like a, a fun action movie set piece sort of thing. Like whoa, whoa, whoa! Like what are you talking about? Because it's is... just about him being like angry over the betrayal and Wax's death. It's more than that. I'm gonna. I don't, I don't think I buy that it's more than that. Okay, so he says in this scene, as he's walking up to shoot her, he's like, you killed the only person I ever cared about. I hate them all. I hate everybody else on this earth except for him. That's... Yeah, but nothing changes about that, though. Like, this isn't, this isn't a don't... scene in which he's like... Oh, I'm gonna get over that, and I'm gonna like actually care about everybody around me now. No, it's but just, we don't. He's angry, and he does something cool with that anger. We don't know that before. We don't know how angry he is. We know that he's goofy and silly and like huh. plays dumb all the time, but we don't know his anger. Well, he doesn't have that anger before. He has that anger because Wax just got killed. He's clearly holding it. He hates everyone. I, I think he's over speaking there. He clearly doesn't hate everyone. He said, why would he say it like that and like be so out of character for himself for what we know of him? Uh, it's, it's really hard for me to reconcile that with the fact that we have many Wayne points of view over the course of three books before this. And we don't see that through his attitudes. We don't see him hating everybody around him. He does care about people. He's playing a character. He's playing a role, I think. No, so that's that's a problem. If you believe that, that means Brandon Sanderson failed at writing his point of view. Because this is supposed to be a close third person point of view where we are truly inside their head. And if and if what you're okay, reading into that fair, is that what is really inside his head is fake, then that means Brandon's not actually writing a close enough point of view. Then why put this scene here? I, mean, I, I, I think I have a different interpretation of that scene than you do. I think you're reading more into that than I am. Like, I just, I don't buy that he actually hates everybody around him except for Wax. I mean, he, he shows it to Steris. Yeah, I, he, I, he definitely doesn't like Steris. But, but that's something we were shown before this. Right. You're you're reading into this scene as if it's this grand revelation of Wayne. We already knew that he disliked Stairs. Sure, sure, but I didn't know that he hated everybody. And I don't think he does. We don't see any of that from his point of view. I think he's just really, really angry at Telson in this situation, and he's justifying his violence to her. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Marcy. Let's talk Marcy. Yeah, so they have a scene together, too, in the graveyard. They do. And they work well together. Yeah. Um, let me see. I So I have a few things. 
um, highlighted about Marisi. Oh, I thought I had more than this, but uh, so sorry. Talk talk graveyard. So Wayne teaches her a little bit about how to impersonate, and he gives her a couple instructions, and then has her do. I don't know, do her own. And she 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 does well, like pretending to be in this role. And the guy, the graveyard digger, buys it. Mm-hmm. And then in the fight scene, they also work well together. Yeah. Um, and I think that like that plays out in the climax of the book when Steris, you know, has her like usefulness ratings. And mm. Marisi is more useful than Wayne. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, what I want to talk about with Marcy is hearkening back to the things I said in the last couple of books, um, where she's she's still on this journey of finding who she is and what is important to her. And in the last book, she had really latched onto this idea of being a constable. Right. And... That continues here, obviously, but it's starting to evolve. Yes. Um, she doesn't, like in the last book, wearing her uniform was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Like she shows up to uh, that gathering at the end in her uniform. Yep. And Wax like thinks about how that stands out. Here, um, there's a scene midway through the book uh, where they're they're just arriving in New Saren. And uh, he asks Marcy, he's like, you know, do you want to take a shortcut rather than like wait for the gondolas? And she says, you realize I'm wearing a skirt. And he says, I do. What happened to that fancy new constable uniform with the trousers? And she says, packed away. Not everyone likes wearing uniforms when we don't have to, Waxillian. That is a pretty big change from where we saw her in Shadows of Self. I mean, we do start off the book with, She's like, look, Wayne, I have moved on. Because mm-hmm. Wayne Wayne is like, do you see Do you see Wax? You could have him. Look, I, I ended oh, the yeah. wedding. So Wax, in, in the first book, Wax was the symbol she was aimed at. Sure. In the second book, the uniform was the symbol she was aimed at. In this book, she doesn't have a single, like, grounding symbol in that same way. She's really confused. There are several, several moments. So there's that one. I had a couple of them later on. Um, you know, when in, in that scene, when she sees that she's rated an 83 out of a hundred, um, and they're talking about being useful, mm-hmm. you know, she, she says, Steris, why do you care about being useful here in the first place? And Steris replies, well, why do you? And she says, because this is who I am. And that's, you know, like that is in, in that moment, that's her symbol. It's, it's not necessarily being a constable, but being a person of use. Uh, she's thinking bigger picture at a lot of points in this book where she's thinking about how to fix society on a, on a bigger level, you know. And she's, she's focused on being true to herself. Yeah, but she still isn't fully settled on it. She doesn't quite know. There's another scene a little later on. Um, again, talking with Steris, uh, and, and, you know, she realizes Steris really is in love with wax and all that. Mm -hmm. And then Steris says, when will you find someone to make you happy? And she says, it's not about finding someone Steris, not for me. 
And then internally in her, you know, not actual thought, but in her internal like exposition, she goes, but what was it about? She leaves this book with, but what was it about? What is my life about? She's still left with that question. And again, I want us to go into the lost metal, keeping this in mind that through the first two books, Marcy had a pretty concrete symbol that she was pointing herself at, trying to figure her life out. And it, after not really finding a an ultimate solution with either of those two symbols, in this book, she's casting a wider net, trying to figure herself out more, but doesn't have a singular goal the way she did in the first two. And I see her trying things out and being like, nope, that's not me. Nope, that's not me. Like when she has the bands of mourning. Yeah. She's like, nope, this is not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, here you go, Wax. Like I, yeah, I'll, I'll accomplish our goal here, but it's it's not for me to do this part in this. Yeah. He he tells her, he's like, no, you could have done this. She's like, no, I couldn't have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not me. Yep. And, and. Going after Wax, that's also not her. Yeah, like she talks about um, in the graveyard, she muses about Vin. And she thinks about how Vin is this role model for so many young girls. Mm-hmm. And how for a lot of her young life, she wanted to be Vin. That, that was that symbol, you know. And this book was her really recognizing, I have absolutely moved beyond that symbol of my life. Right. Yeah. Some big moments, big development moments. Yeah, I think Marcy just has a really, really fascinating and affecting full series character arc. So, so yeah, like we'll we'll talk more about that when we get into the Lost Metal and we see where Brandon ultimately, you know, takes Marcy. I think right. that's going to be a really fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have any other like characters that you really want to talk about? Uh, I guess Milan doesn't do a whole lot here. Yeah, Milan's Milan. Um, Telson, we Telson. We didn't really get anything with Telson before this book. No. Um, and we get that scene of them growing up, and Telson is the rebel, and Telson is running away from the terrace village, and kind of. Maybe leading a group yeah, of yeah, rebels. For sure. And on top of that, um, she decides to stay in the village. Which is really interesting because she was always running away. So how in the world she got to the place where she's at, where she brought Edward in. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how did she find... But she was always ambitious. That's the biggest yes, thing. Yes, like yes. she. Her leaving the village wasn't like trying to escape it. It was just like she was comfortable there, but she wanted more than just that. But why? I also don't know why. Why would she stay? What what ambition can she fulfill there? It's being cut, a ferrochemist. Yeah, but it's well, cut not, off not from a, the world. A terrorist. Um, but there's status to that. Uh, like they're they're a special secluded society. I see that as something that she you know, she would desire, but of course she wants all of the 
potential luxuries of life in Allendale. So while she's taking advantage of Terrace hospitality, she's sneaking off to get, you know, in Terrace culture, illicit activities. And she she also kind of implies here that Edwin and maybe her parents really are more concerned with wax than they are with her. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of a um, jealousy. Yeah. I mean, she's I guess she's overshadowed maybe, and they just don't see the use in her. Yeah. Well, because she didn't have the metallic arts, and wax had both. Yeah. Yeah. Though, of course, now she's got multiple powers, thanks to hemallergy. Great. Yeah. Um, mm. Do you want to talk about Edward too? Uh, I don't really have much to say about him. He, he didn't change a whole lot as a character over the course of these three books. He was just a, a pretty competent villain. Uh, I, I guess I liked that he got stuck in certain patterns of thought with Wax, where he he was so used to Wax not learning that when Wax started learning, he he himself didn't learn. Right. Like, uh, and that was ultimately his undoing, where he should have noticed in New Saren that Wax was doing things in unexpected ways. Uh, you know, where he was frustrated with. Uh, Lady Kelsina because the distractions weren't working. Mm -hmm. And instead of recognizing Wax is getting better at this, he says, you're messing up. You're not executing these distractions properly. Right. And ultimately when he tries his final distraction, it doesn't work on Wax. So. Uh, And then he gets killed like a chump (laughs) by a (laughs) faceless immortal, quote unquote. Faceless? What do you mean? He calls it a faceless immortal. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought he just called it an immortal. No, yeah, he says, like, nobody knew on this world, but Trell also had faceless immortals. Uh, Although, obviously, they work differently than Chandra. Right. Um, That's something we'll, again, we'll talk about when we get to Cosmere things. Um, Let's see, other characters. Vendel? I don't and like Vendel's it's just one note, you know, like I don't yeah, think there's yeah, anything yeah. particularly interesting to talk about there. Well, he's, he's generation six, right? Uh, what about Alec? How do you feel about oh, Alec? Oh yeah, Alec. Well, I mean, we only have a short time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's fun though. He is fun. Yeah. Like he, he's got a really peppy personality. He's yeah. Like high energy, he he seems like the kind of person who brightens a room when he comes in, <laughs> and and clearly, like he did for his own people too. Like yeah. getting thrown out of the ship because yeah. he can't dance, yeah. and then passing it as somebody else's story. Yeah, I really liked that touch. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about that. Uh, that was good. That's definitely good. So, but yeah, he also opens up the world to us a little bit. Mm-hmm. The way we haven't had much of. I mean, I guess Elantris has two different stories on it. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see another culture here. Mm-hmm. 
And, and this is going to be a big deal going forward. Like yeah. you, you know, like they're, they're the ones with the alimantic and ferrochemical technology. We know that's the future of Mistborn is going to be going that major tech route. Like, yeah. 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 So the only other character I want to talk about, and it's like, I don't really have much to say, but welcome back, Kelsier. <laughs> hey, bud. Yeah, that was uh, like the first time reading this book, you know, the day the Bands of Morning came out and I got to that final scene and you get the description of the scars in the arms and you're just like, holy crap, <laughs> you know. And, and then at the end of the moment. book, it's like, oh, Surprise! Yeah, and so this is one of those things that I uh, I see argued over and over and over online, um, and I do think there is a a correct answer to this when people ask like when should when should I read Mistborn Secret History? And the in the postscript of the Bands of Morning, he says. You know, to tide you over until Oathbringer. It's funny now knowing the timeline, but uh, I have just released a special digital-only novella that is intended to be read after the Bands of Mourning. Okay, so next. Yeah, I see tons and tons of people ask this question online, and lots of people reply and say, read it after Era 1. No, read it after no, Hero of Ages. No, or, no. or I even see people say, like, Read it during Era 1, where what? you split up, and I'm like, no, that's a terrible, terrible advice. Um, like, I really think it, it dramatically reduces the impact of the revelations at the end of this book. Yes. It really undercuts the, the narrative tension of thinking that the Lord Ruler may have survived, because you know for sure the Lord Ruler did not survive. And, like... Yeah, so it just, it takes away a lot from the final act of The Bands of Mourning, reading Secret History first, and the author himself in multiple places, not only at the end of Bands of Mourning, but the beginning of Secret History, at least the original ebook version of yes, Secret History, yes. um, he has a an author's note saying, like, you should really read this after Bands of Mourning. Yep, uh, yep. If you haven't done that, think about it. Yeah, I'd have to pull up the actual quote from from, from Secret ebook. History. Yeah, because it's it is something specific that he like. There was wording that he used that I, I'm trying to remember. Is uh, there is there an audio of that now, or is it still just the ebook? Secret History. Oh, there's it all. There's regular audio, graphic audio. Um, is there a there's book? a physical copy. There is. Yeah, they just they just released a physical hardcover, oh, okay. like one of the little. Yeah. So the preface of Mistborn Secret History: This story contains enormous spoilers for the first three Mistborn novels. Seriously, please don't read this unless you've read those books. I'd actually prefer you wait until you finished Book Six, The Bands of Mourning, because some of the reveals in this story will spoil that book as well. That is how he starts so off don't. Mistborn Secret History. Yeah. So don't. Um, I mean, I feel like most people listening to this now uh, have already made that decision. But if if you as a listener are having a friend read through the first time, I would strongly urge you to give them the advice that Brandon uh, <laughs> Brandon offers. 
Anyway, uh, that is the end of characters for me. Okay. Shall we talk Cosmere? Okay, where do you even want to start, though? Okay, well, first off, uh, spoiler warning for this. Uh, this will be full Cosmere spoilers. Uh, this will include Mistborn Secret History. This is... Everything published uh, is on the table for this Cosmere conversation. So if you want to avoid those spoilers, skip ahead probably like 10 minutes or so. Um, if you don't care about those spoilers or you've read everything else, uh, tag along. Because this is going to be fun. Uh, let's start with the broadsheet. Okay. So there are two really big Cosmere things in the broadsheet. Uh there's the bigger one, of course, is the Nikki Savage story. The smaller one is a very fun little ad. About talking tools. Yeah. Do your do your tools talk to you? And, you know, if you have information, go to this address and ask for K or N. And that is Chris and Nas. And Nas, of course, is the haunted man in the Nikki Savage story. Um, he is from Threnody which is the world Shadows for Silence in the Forest of Hell takes place on. Do we know when he got out of Threnody? Before or after? Um, I know when. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Oh, true. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I would have to look on Arcanum and see if I, but I don't think that has been answered in words of Brandon or otherwise. Ugh. So, yeah, I'm not going to answer that for right now. Um, <laughs> but he he and Chris have been working at least for a while. They show up in Secret History together, which is 300 years before this book. Right. Um, and so. they've, they've done a lot together. If you've read um, Unbound... What? Arcanum Unbounded. Unbound. Thank you. Unbounded. I mean, he, he only shows up in Secret History in that. Yeah, but I'm saying he did a lot of work for um, the maps and the prefaces. Yeah, yeah, he, where he Chris, does the... Chris Alla introduces each system and what she knows about it. Right. He's not a, I mean. But he, he gathered the yeah, maps. Yeah, he, he, he's like her errand boy. Isaac describes him as like Cosmere James Bond, where he gets sent <laughs> off on like spy missions to infiltrate and steal information and things like that. Okay, so let's talk about what he does in Nikki Savage. Yeah, so he is, we know Chris sends him off to get maps. And in that Nikki Savage story, he is stealing a map of New Saren. And we know, so this is one of those prime differences in the style of Alamancer Jack versus Nikki Savage. If you're reading both of those stories at face value, you'd be like, okay, you know, these are wacky adventures. And we're reading a book about other characters having wacky adventures. But with Alamancer Jack, we have Handerwim's footnotes, which make it very clear that this is embellished. A lot of this didn't happen the way Alamancer Jack is reporting. Now with Nikki Savage... It could come across, once you're already operating with that knowledge about Alamancer Jack, the Nikki Savage story could come across the same way, that she's embellishing. Especially because the things that happen in this story are ridiculous. This guy has a gun that shoots ghosts. Like, and it and it destroys this, yeah. this but, door. 
if you know the rest of the Cosmere, you know that shades on Threnody do rust, they destroy, they, you know, like, yeah. they have this effect. And even down to the colors where his gun glows green and then it turns to red before he shoots the ghost. On Threnody, the shades normally are moving around with green eyes. When they get enraged, they turn red. You know, and so little details like that that indicate, you know, Nikki Savage would have no idea. Like, she's never been to Threnody. You know, she wouldn't know that detail to make it up. Yeah. And then on top of that, in the story, the map rips. Mm -hmm. In the book, the map of New Saren, annotated by Nas, is ripped in half. (laughs) <laughs> and Nikki mentions in the story that like, I have to admit the, the half of the map that he got is the, the better half. It's the more useful half. And so the half of the map of new Saren that we see has all the important locations on it. You know, so like there are little details. If you're willing to spend, you know, to read a little deeper that show Nikki Savage is actually probably reporting this accurately. And she even meets, Hoyd at the end of it. Yes. And has this throwaway detail that, you know, there was this youthful white haired beggar who asked if I wanted to hear a story. And you're like, yeah, that's totally Hoyd. That's a thing that definitely happened there. Well, we already saw him as a beggar too in the book. Right. And, and like, it's like, these are just the sorts of details that why would she have the knowledge to put that in there? Why would she make that up? Mm-hmm. Um, why would it be included if it didn't happen? Um, yeah, so so it's it's really cool, and we also get a little hint about intent, which is super important in the Cosmere. It's a, a bigger thing that gets brought up in Rhythm of War and identity. Um, well, that's medallions. I'm talking about in the story where she uses her chromium on his gun. She specifically talks about using the same intent to oh, leech. Yeah the investiture out of it as she does when she leeches Alamancers. She uses the word intent, which is like a really important thing. And we didn't, this is one of the first times that word is used in this manner in the whole Cosmere. And it's not until rhythm of war that we get a lot more focus on intent and we get it um, highlighted heavily in the Ars Arcanum. Like it's, so it's really cool seeing Brandon, seeding the foundation for massively important Cosmere, you know, elements. But to go to your point on identity, he's aware, like, the way these medallions work and the way identity and connection work, like, this is a lot for readers to get their heads around. Sure. Adding intent to that would make this book overwhelming. So he just puts that in there and lets it sit there for a while. And then he's like, I'll, I'll really dive into that in a later book. But in this book, we're going to focus on identity and connection. And these are, you know, we go back to the very beginning when Vendel is talking. And introduces And this. he introduces the four spiritual attributes in Farrakimi, which are investiture, identity, connection, and uh, fortune. And, and, and we still don't know much about fortune and how that works. But at this point, as Cosmere readers, we know a great deal about identity connection and investiture. Mm. So, I mean, we get more, we certainly don't know everything, but we, we know a lot more about how these things work. Uh, And this book was the 
identity and connection thing. You know, Alec talks about why the medallion doesn't work for Marisi right. when she tries to use it to talk to him. Uh, you know, because it's where you are. Their location is important. Yes. Um, yeah. And and using other people's metal mines, you know. Mm-hmm. Having, having one that you could have access to is... Yeah, yeah. Um, then there's another scene that I called out in my summary at the beginning. Chris Ola. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I vividly remember the first time I read this book, getting to that scene, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Chris. Like, I was so excited. She <laughs> is my favorite character Brandon has written. Um, yeah, she, we see it in the scene. We see why. Like, she's such a nerd. She's just, <laughs> ah, she's so enthusiastic and so knowledgeable and so like. We'll introduce the scene. Yeah. 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 It's at, at the party in New Saren and she like snipes the dance. With wax. With wax and starts asking him about being a crasher and telling him how rare his abilities are. And There have only been three born as far yeah. as I know. And like. Wayne's less interesting. Let's talk about physics with you. Yeah, and then she like wanders off at the end, like muttering about why there's no red shift with speed bubbles. Yeah. Like, yeah. So uh, it's such a good scene. And of course, right before that was Hoyd. Wait, talk about Chrysala, like who she is, where she's from. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get too much into this because this is like a, a conversation more for White Sand episodes, but... She is one of the main characters in White Sand. Um, she's the character who writes the Ars Arcanum at the end of every book. She did, as we said earlier, the um, the system essays in Arcanum Unbounded. Uh, she is, uh, according to Brandon, probably the most knowledgeable person about the Cosmere. Um, Do we know if she... Did she found the university? Um, so I've... I've seen people talking, saying that she did. I, I feel like there's got to be a word of Brandon that people are pulling that information from. Uh, I don't specifically I don't remember, remember one, but uh, there are, so there are multiple universities in Silverlight. It wouldn't surprise me at all if she founded one of them. And Silverlight is in the cognitive realm. Correct. Yeah. But she, at the very least, she's involved with Silverlight. Yeah. She's, she's a, a big deal Cosmere realmatic scholar. Yes. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Other Cosmere things here. Um, okay, so the Faceless Immortal. Trell's Faceless Immortal oh at the end here. Okay, okay. Uh, this is a theory. Um, I talked on a previous episode about my Trell theory that Trell's autonomy. And... There is more to that theory that, you know, I was kind of saving for this, uh, that I think autonomy and odium were working together. Uh, we had a word of Brandon from a long time ago, probably almost a decade ago, that odium is afraid of harmony because uh, harmony holds two shards. Uh, and, and extrapolating off of that, I... You know, when I was first formulating this theory back in whatever, like 2013, 2014, um, I I was like, look, Odium, if he's afraid of Harmony, he's not going to want to directly attack him. But if he can convince Autonomy to do it, 
I could see Odium giving him some extra resources. And so these Faceless Immortals, um, we're going to tie this back to Elantris. We know Odium showed up on Cell and killed Aeona and Sky, the vessels for Devotion and Dominion, and splintered those two shards. Uh, we know very clearly two of the main religions, uh, Shukarath and Shudareth, were in some way based on inspired by those two shards, Demotion and Dominion. In, uh, in Elantris, there are these things called Svrakis that are mentioned. They're basically demons who serve the enemy of the Derethi, Shudareth. And when you, when you extrapolate through that, you're like, okay, these Svrakis are probably of Odium. And in Elantris, they're described as being spirits that can steal people's bodies and take over their bodies. At the end of this book, we get a dude, some random beggar that Edwarn thinks was like probably stolen off the street by this faceless immortal. With the red eyes, corrupted investiture, you know, invading investiture. Uh, I think Trell's faceless immortals are Svrakis. Uh, they're odium spren, basically. They're a, a specific type of odium spren that we probably haven't seen yet uh, in the Stormlight Archive. So we, there are void spren. This is a, an important uh, naming distinction. We've seen lots of different kinds of void spren. Um, this was a word of Brandon that you actually got for me at the Arcanum Unbounded signing in Fort Collins in 2016. Uh, I was overseas on a business trip in London, which was rough. Um, but I had you ask about Odium Spren because this is when, you know, back when I was really like <laughs> fleshing out my autonomy, Odium invasion of Scadrial theory. And Brandon said Odium Spren are a thing and that we haven't seen them yet, that they live mostly on Brays. Um, and so like there are... It, to think about this in terms of um, terminology, spren of odium are called void spren as an umbrella term. And then there is a specific kind of void spren called an odium spren in the same way that we have like uh, emotion spren and uh, nature spren that are of honor and cultivation. And a specific type of those are Honor Spren and Cultivation Spren, Windle and Sill being examples of those. So I think Odium Spren in particular are what Sfrakis are. And that's what we see here at the end. I just went like full, um, it's always sunny, uh, crazy, um, you know. Hands are moving, you can't board. see it, but yeah. it's... Uh, that, but that's, you know, that's the great thing about the Cosmere, this world that this universe... Brandon has built that this sort of theorizing is even possible. <laughs> okay. So I just assumed that Palm had a sliver of a metal we can't identify in her that we think was linked to Trell. Uh-huh. I assumed that there was another in this person. But Palm didn't in. have glowing red eyes like that. But she's a different kind of creature. She's also got another spike. Right. So okay, maybe she can't be fully taken over the way that a, a human can. 
because she's got this other influence in her counteracting it. So she can be influenced, but not controlled. Right. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that was ever a concern though. Like I don't see why he would waste a spren on a Chandra. Like, well, I assumed that this, this guy who came in off the street and blew them both up mm-hmm. just had a, a spike in him. Oh, okay. Less fun than your theory, okay. but, <laughs> okay. but that was, that was my assumption. All right. So then who put the spike in? I mean, he's got already so many agents. But then why didn't those agents just come in? They're still useful. For now. For now. Yeah. To okay. autonomy. All right. All right. Um, okay. I'm trying to think now if there's anything else Cosmere-wise in this book. I feel like I'm forgetting something. I kind of feel like I am too. But uh, if we forgot anything, yell at us. Um, I, I went down my, my theory, <laughs> crazy theory rabbit hole. Um, uh, hmm. yeah. Do we have any new metals here? I mean, no, I mean, we, we learn just like a little more about like the ferrochemical properties of nicrosyl and how it like stores investiture. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but I liked, I think it was zinc, which was speed of mind. Yeah. Could be stored in. Mm -hmm. I like how he wrote that. Uh, in the scene where uh, Wax is confronting Edwarn and he cuts off one word from the end of a sentence of mm-hmm. Edwarn's dialogue and writes like four paragraphs of <laughs> internal thought process and then ends the sentence. So you, you get the impression that like Wax is thinking this fast that all of this went through his head in the space between two words. Super useful. Yeah. Also, I'm, I'm curious why we didn't see Says to use it. In in Era 1. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't maybe, know. maybe he did and, and... We just didn't realize. It, it wasn't like a major important scene. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. Um, oh, we have that scene with Harmony. Right, and, and the red to... mist invading and... Of, of Trell. Right. I don't know if there's anything more that I have to say about that scene. It's a really cool moment. Um, we get to see more of Scadriel's cognitive realm with the mist. Well, we have Vendel saying that Harmony is very distracted and more concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just the red mist. We talked about this last month. Yeah, the a discord theory. Yeah. Yeah. That trail is discord. And maybe that's why he's doing some things that maybe seem more destructive than helpful. Hmm. Like, did you really have to hurt wax like that? I mean, he does say at the end that he, he had to, he was like, there were, I saw many possibilities of wax and this is the one that had to be done. So, I, don't know. I mean, I guess he didn't make her fall for him. She he, she no. was sent out there to just yeah. mo- help him. Yeah, he was like, if 
if you hadn't done it, would you have been okay with somebody else doing it? And Wax is like, no. And he's like, yeah, exactly. No, I just mean Palm, like being out in the roughs with him. Oh. Like she wasn't made to marry him. No. She wasn't put there to fill that role. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much all I have for um, Cosmere stuff. So we can go into three favorite scenes. Okay. I had him. You start because I, I got to remember. Me start? Yeah. Okay. Well, my third favorite scene is the very last scene of the book. Um, Kelsier's memory. Survive. Oh. Just such a great moment. Such a great revelation. Uh, say one thing about Brandon Sanderson. He is really, really good at dropping these, you know, plot twists, truth bombs massive reveals, whatever you want to call them. And this is one of the best. This is up there with, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty wonderful. I'll have to bleep that out, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Third for me, maybe that scene when they're escaping the, the party, new Saren. Mm-hmm. And, Wax is holding Steris and they're above the clouds and like... She's all hot and bothered. <laughs> well, she's just... She's enjoying herself and he's like, you know what? I I really do love you. Like, and I'm... I want to kiss you for the first time and... Yeah. Yeah. And it's really sweet and romantic and realistic. Sure. Yeah, I, I in general think he did a very good job writing the relationship, the romance between Wax and Steris. I'm mostly not a big fan of Brandon's like romantic writing, but that one's really good. It's good. Probably his best. Growing up, um, my mom read to me a lot and there was one series that ended up, I think on Lifetime or something. It was a series or Hallmark. Um, Probably. But it was, it was called Love Comes Softly. And it was about this woman in the Old West who was by herself because of circumstances and a man who lost his wife and has like a five-year-old daughter that he needs to take care of. And he says, look, she really, she really needs a mother and... I can help you out. This doesn't need to be a marriage, but like, can you come live with us and take care of her? Sure. Okay. And so they, you, like, you, they slowly fall in love of, and it's. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's really sweet. Uh, so my second favorite scene was them checking into the hotel. The poor hotel owner. Oh, what that, about that whole scene was just so funny. Like, <laughs> what about the end scene? When yeah, when there, like... she's like page seventeen, frame for murder. It's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but but everything with that scene was was just really funny, and the way it ends with Marcy being like, "He's ridiculous. Don't don't pay attention to him. You know, he's the crazy one." By the way. Uh, where can I find the local graveyard? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, is that's one of those moments where Brandon got the humor right for sure. 
that yeah. scene. Yeah, like, that was great. There was a lot of this book that I didn't remember super well because I'd only read it once six and a half years ago, you know, and but that scene I did remember. I didn't. It really stuck out. So what was and, your second favorite? Okay, first real quick, I just want to say okay. like with Steris, the humor is great. Yeah, yeah. Like all those moments with her when I laugh out loud, they're mm-hmm. <laughs> they're genuine, you know? Yeah. And it's a different kind of humor from a lot of Brandon's normal stuff. Yeah, yeah. I like that more. It so, seems unforced. Agreed. Um, okay. Sorry, this one still struck me, Drew. I can't I can't get over it. Was this scene with Wayne shooting Telson? Hmm. Okay. It just it's dark, you know, and yeah. and Wayne's not Wayne's not dark. He's got some dark sides to him. Well, yeah, but we just don't see him. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, my favorite scene, probably to the surprise of nobody, is Chris stealing a dance from Wax. <laughs> just look, Chris doesn't get on screen very often. Like, this is one of only two scenes outside of White Sand that she has appeared on page, as far as we know, but I am pretty sure of that um, up to this point. And I can't let that go unnoticed. Chris is great. Okay. This is the best. I honestly expected you to pick the scene that I picked. Oh, what's your favorite? Uh... The ending scene where they get married. Oh, that was a good scene. I I consider that one. That probably would have been an honorable mention. Yeah, it was a good scene. It's just wonderful. It's sappy, yes. No, I mean, my favorite scene in Chavez itself was a scene like that. So, yeah. And actually, one of my favorite scenes, it might have been my favorite scene. I can't remember what I ended up choosing uh, for Ally of Law was... Wax and Steris at the end. Yeah, you did. Yes. I mean, but part of it is uh, Steris never expects that. Mm-hmm. Like she just, she doesn't have a whole lot of hope for things for herself. Yeah, she has low self-esteem. Yeah. yeah. So the moments are always really touching. Yeah. yeah. Ah, oof. So uh, I think that brings us to the end of our coverage of the bands of morning but before we're going to sign off we still have the final draft um i'll talk first because lauren has the thematically appropriate beer uh i am drinking another non-alcoholic uh winter warmer from athletic brewing company this is lodge life um i used it last episode uh so i'm not like it, it is still like sort of, you know, thematically appropriate in the same way it was last episode. We get some scenes in in the lodges in the village um, and we get a, a new kind of lodge life at the very end of the book with Kelsier going and meeting with the uh, the Southern Skadrians in their, like, longhouse. As they're all slowly dying. Yeah. Pretty brutal. But Lauren, you have the, uh, the great one. <laughs> So I have a hazy IPA from my brewery that I work at. Um, this was not out before. In fact, I'm not sure it's out now yet. They made an announcement on Facebook, so it's at least 
we can talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I could have done this for one of the other books. It's called Train Heist. Yeah, perfect. So this is a hazy IPA, which is kind of what we specialize in. And this one has talus and lotus hops, which means it tastes like like fruit. Yeah, it's like I smelled it when Lauren was pouring it. And I was like, is that adjuncted? Like, is there fruit in that? Because it smells like, let me... Yeah, it's like mango, grapefruit. Maybe pineapple a little bit. There's like real citrus. Like like the grapefruit is strong and lime. Like grapefruit and lime and mango. Like, I don't know, it smells amazing. <laughs> okay, and it tastes great too. Yeah. So... Hop resins are pretty amazing, and we have a lot of different hop varieties now, so we can isolate the ones that we want for these different flavors that people get. Obviously, it's still a little bit individual. Um, You don't necessarily smell and taste the same things as your neighbor, Mm -hmm. but these are very sweet hops, and... This beer, this beer is pretty sweet as well. Like if you're thinking of a West Coast IPA, something that's really astringent and bitter, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, this is more a New England style IPA where it's um, it's unfiltered and I can't see through it. It's kind of a yellow yeah. color with a lot of haze and it's creamy and fruity. And like, there's a tiny bit of a bitter hop bite, but it's so smoothed over that you yeah. gloss over it. Yeah. Yeah. This one's got a really creamy mouthfeel. It's, it's nice. Yeah. Train heist. Great one. Would have been good for Alloy of Law as well. Obviously it hadn't been created yet. No, it's good it, for it, this was, one too. it was sitting in a tank when we recorded that. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a train heist in this episode <laughs> in, in this book. So that's, uh. That's what we needed. Uh, and I think that brings us to the end here. This has been, dang it, what episode is this? 191? Jeez, Drew. 191, yeah, of Inking Out Loud. Um, next up, we are going to be heading on into Mistborn Secret History, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, and after that, we're going to be doing the Lost Metal. We are that close. So gear up that is going to be super fun for the lost metal we're going to be doing multiple episodes uh probably two episodes going to split it right around halfway through the book uh the lost metal is longer than any of the first three so there's a little more you know content to talk about and that's going to be a ton of fun i mean there's a lot to wrap up yeah Um, and it's yeah it's the end of an era there's there's going to be a bunch of Cosmere discussion, obviously. There's Those episodes are going to be great. Make sure you tune in for those. Um, yeah. Uh, that said, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. But as always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Lauren. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for joining me again. 
And for everyone else out there, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time.